You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. I often say football is very under-analyzed in terms of five, ten years periods. And it's extremely all-analyzed game to game. It was not a club philosophy, it was actually a person philosophy from Wenger or from Ferguson. And therefore, when they left, the club has nothing left. The club lost its, its identity, which I see many places. We had six transfer windows in a row in Shanghai where we didn't buy one player, which I think is some kind of world record almost in this industry. <laughs> and in the sixth window, that was where we won the, the championship. Hi and welcome to this edition of Sports Content Strategy. My guest this time is Mads Davison. He's a football consultant, runs a company called Optima Football and his role is to help clubs work strategically and sustainably to get success on the pitch over the long term. Football is often criticised for being short-termist, wasting a lot of money, flabby, unintelligent in the way that it works. Well, Mads is trying to solve that issue. He's had success in China, worked as technical director for a club called Shanghai SIPG, won the title there, and was technical director when Andre Villas-Boas was the coach there. He's a Dane by birth, worked in Danish football as well. Check out my show notes for links to Mads and links to me as well. You can follow me on all social media. This is episode 51. I knocked up my half century at the start of the year and the back catalogue to sports content strategy is there too. So without further ado, let's talk about how to be intelligent in football, how to run your club the right way with this man. My name is Matt Davidson. I'm a Danish football coach currently located in Spain where I run my football consultancy, Optima Football where I try to help clubs uh, become more sustainable over time and making more long-term planning. Uh, before that, coaching for the last 15 years or so in Denmark and in China. Thanks for your time, Mads. And the reason for this podcast, really, is a blog post you wrote. 75% of all clubs are strategically unhealthy, uh, which was a very provocative title. But I was interested in it from that perspective because we're hearing football is unsustainable all the time. For all sorts of reasons, probably that Europe's top 12 are insulated from that, but um, there's overspending, there's lack of vision, there's short-termism, there's ego, there's all sorts of issues behind this. So what's, what was your argument in that piece? Yeah, it was some of the of the same things that you just you just uh, noted. So we 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 tried to analyze uh, clubs over time, looking at their budget and define whether they achieved their potential. Uh, so I we have a theme in in my company. We have a, 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 a thesis a thesis saying that football is seventy percent decided by uh, economics. So that means that the rich, the richest club, have to win seven of ten championships, more more say, which is also what what is happening. Uh, it's actually getting even worse. <laughs> Juventus seven in a row, Paris six in a row, uh, and so on. Um, but anyway, that leaves thirty uh, percent left. Uh, then we have luck, coincidences, and uh, in two thousand twenty, we might add VAR. Uh, that's ten percent uh, in terms of football. Is is an open sport game. Uh, where randomness uh, will always have an effect on on uh, on a low scoring game uh, and then we have 20% left for technical areas and uh, that's more or less where we try to analyze what is clubs doing with these 20% how are they approaching a new coach will there be a change of style of play when they change the coach will there be a big overload of changing players etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and there we could we could just easily find out that so many clubs was was strategically unhealthy. Your approach to this is it academic in a sense because you've you've I've read a lot of your your papers on your website and you seem to have a very academic approach to this. But you're a football coach, so has your background been in academia? And, and just could you tell me about your framework? Yeah, it's it, there's no doubt that I try to bring in what I learned in university uh, into the, the world of football. So I've, I've studied uh, history and journalism on, on university in Denmark and have a master in, in journalism and history from a Danish uh, university. Um, so what you learn in, in university is not only history and, and journalism. You learn how to prove that, that, that the things you claim is, is correct. Um, your professor will always say, 
how do you know this? Where do you know this from when you write something? Uh, so I took this this thinking into football while I was doing a part-time uh, youth coaching at the same time in Denmark and uh, starting to think about also use of data. I, I did my own data 15 years ago. You didn't have any, um, but at that time, you didn't have any companies who provided data. So I did my own data, tried to, to play around, find out how we could prove some different things in terms of someone said a player was a good player and another guy said a player was not a good passer, for example. And then simply we could we could use data uh, to, to find out. Um, so I've just used kind of what university gave me of tools in terms of methodology and how to uh, prove ev- evidence through empirical studies, basically. I've tried to take that into the world of football as a coach, as a technical director, who, which I was in China, and now as a, as a consultant. So I just want to pick the bones out of this blog piece you wrote about uh, 75% of clubs being strategically unhealthy. And some of the reasons you outlined were at the boardroom level, a lack of knowledge at that level, and also connecting them to the training ground. So so just expand on what you've what you've seen and... How do you solve it, I suppose? <laughs> yeah, that is the big question. Um, no, firstly, what we what we saw also from my from using my network, from uh, I've been visiting more than 25 clubs over the last few years, uh, so I've gotten a good insight into clubs, how they operate, uh, what's the difficult part for the people on the on the on the ground, so to speak, and 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 how was the difficult part for the ownership as well. Um, and I definitely found uh, a miss communication or a mismatch between what is being done in the boardroom and what is being affected on the on the training ground that has several reasons uh, one of them is can be lack of football understanding simply so many owners or board members don't have a football background so any coach no matter if he's uh, what level he's on, he would be able to win easily an argument with with their owner because the owner wouldn't have any empirical studies or work-related uh, things to, to rely on. It would just be opinions uh, where the coach, he would always win that argument. So my my my, um, my idea is always to have a person working for the ownership who is their uh, strategic uh, worker. So that would be a technical director or a sporting director that, that have to refer to the uh, ownership in terms of some KPIs that they can measure their... For example, their start of play, are we developing in terms of how we want to play? Are we recruitment? Are we becoming more, um, increasing our values of our players, etc.? And then, on the other hand, walking down to the training ground and in details explaining and overseeing if the coaching staff and the technical staff is doing what is being written down in the in the boardroom. Um, so that is one way to to do it but what we saw is that often the directors either don't have also don't have any coaching backgrounds also for them it's difficult to to actually oversee if a start of play or methodology is is is, is developing football hasn't really developed any good kpis until we when we just look at points <laughs> which uh, my ten-year-old uh, nephew also can do so. It's we we haven't really developed any significant tools to help either the ownership or or the coach. So that is something that uh, Optima Football also tries to to provide. I was going to ask you about the KPI. So, you, have you done your own? I mean, you're saying football hasn't done it. Have you got any thoughts on on your own? You, you talked about a couple there about whether the strategic vision is being implemented by the coaches, increasing yeah. the value of the players. Uh, obviously points and on-field success um yeah. anything else yeah i mean style of play i mean what one of my big um my big uh, important things in optimal football is the style of play that, that that is the core of the club that is if you look at a, at a body of a person that is the heart so the heart is, is the most important thing otherwise uh, the people cannot uh, live long um, and it's the same with a football club. Without a style of play, you will you will not have a soul, if you, if you ask me. Um, and what we see is that, similar to what we just discussed, that the style of play will change very often when you change the coach, which basically means that the coach decides the strategy of the club because the board, the owner, rely on how the coach he works, who he works with, and how he wants to play. And that is, for me, a very old-fashioned way of thinking. Um this model 
worked in the 1980s and worked in the 1990s because head coaches at that time statistically was in their job more than two years, often around three years was the average uh, job period for a head coach in a club. So that actually means that the head coach was a long-term employee. But today that number is, is under 17 months. So clubs sack coaches very fast, but they still kind of give them the keys to the club, which for me is completely unlogical, that, that you trust the person that you statistically know you will change within uh, one and a half year. You, 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 he can basically change your team from A to Z in terms of start of play, in terms of which players to, to use, which uh, players to, to sell, which players to buy. That is just strategically very unhealthy. If we compare that logic to, to, to other businesses, let's take a company like Apple, and it would be like if, if uh, the CEO of Apple had, had a bad result for a year, in terms of selling phones or selling selling iPads, and then the new a new CEO came in and he started to say, let's try to let's try to sell beds instead. I think there's a market for beds, and then they will go for that. And then after one year, they will sack him because they couldn't sell enough beds. And and I mean, when we use that picture from another business, it, it sounds almost insane uh, to to think like this. But this is exactly how football clubs are are operating. Yeah, it's been apparent. For ages, a new manager comes in. They've signed all the all the players that they want. Normally, get in five or six players, many of which they'll know. And then when they move on, the club has to pay them off. And there's there's expense as much as uh, on field success and lack of cohesion and things like that. But I mean, that's the technical director route. And as an Englishman, I've always seen that as a more European approach. Whereas in England, we have the manager who's in charge of everything. You know, and I. I worked at Arsenal when Arsene Wenger was in charge and he was the manager doing all the press conferences, um, obviously had a team around him, but the final decision over players was down to him. And also, slightly unusually these days, he was coaching every day on the training field, which is yeah. which is kind of unusual. You compare that with MLS and you've got a GM there and a head coach. And that's more of the way you're thinking, isn't it? Um, in England, there's always been a pushback because uh, uh, with the technical director model and the head coach, I think partly because the the culture we've got of the great man in charge of the football club, and the culture of the manager and and the clash of egos that often happens between a technical director and a head coach, it that seems one of the major issues to, to me. How it's communicated, how it's perceived, but also that internal battle. For for sure, it's uh, it's a it's about uh, conservatism and traditions. And that is difficult to change, no matter if we do it in football or we, or we want to change uh, the Christmas tree, then it's difficult for human beings to change uh, traditions, That's something we have done for a long time. But it's just when we look at it, when we analyze it, it doesn't really make any sense anymore. It, it, it made sense partly for, for people like Wenger, as you mentioned, or Ferguson, because they were in their job so long that they could provide the continuity, they could, they could fulfill the strategy over time. But we also see those two clubs in particular, uh, lost their identity when when those two uh, managers left because it was what I call it was um, it was kind of done by person it was not done by a club it was not a club philosophy it was actually a person philosophy from Wenger or from Ferguson and therefore when they left the club has nothing left look the club lost its its identity which I see many places uh, I go around and I visit and clubs simply don't know how to define themselves if you ask them how does Team X play. What is their their tradition? What is their expression? They cannot answer that question. That is a big uh, that's a big risk for not uh, succeeding over time. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about the Arsenal way or the Everton way or the whatever way it is. Every club seems to have its way, and yet they don't actually act in accordance to it. They talk about it and have a vision, and yet this culture of short termism conservatism you ought to also talked about the lemming effect operating the same way as everybody else that's apparent how do you how do you break through because football is a very insular business isn't it how do you cut through that yes it's difficult because obviously we also need result that is that is obviously the end game and that's why that's why we see many owners or boardrooms uh, they, they often hit the panic button when they lose a few games because, for example, let's take the, the Premier League, it's it's too expensive to be relegated. 
it's simply too expensive and the chance of going up is i saw some some surveys the other day is actually quite small so that means you're going to lose a lot of money short term and that nobody likes to do that so therefore they act a short term decision also but but what they should know is that they should try to analyze themselves over a five year period for example that is football is i often say football is is very un, under analyzed in terms of five ten years periods and it's extremely all analyzed game to game uh, so we we have experts we have uh, media we have everything completely uh, dissecating the game every sunday uh, but actually that game specifically is a game of randomness because it's a low scoring sport and a, a post in a post out shot a var call or not will often define if you win that game or not. So it's actually not that interesting to analyze game to game because it's it's often randomness, luck, coincidences that will have a big effect, maybe up to 25% of the result. The interesting part is to analyze the, the club or the game over time, five years, 10 years, because there you will, you will not win by randomness and luck. You will win by economics and, and, and a clever strategy and a strategy that you continuously fulfill no matter if, if you are in, in, in deep water at, at some point. Um, for myself, I was lucky to, to experience this working in, in Shanghai in China for a club called Shanghai SIPG where we had an owner who uh, was very interested in, in developing a, a very small local club to an international club. And, uh, and I gave him some, some KPIs and some analysis of the market showing what was necessary what what kind of economics does it take but also technically strategically what should we do as a club to to develop and then basically i said to him you have to wait five years until you you see the outcome and he he listened and uh, and we built a very sustainable club that that played with a lot of our own homegrown players and also over time became um Became uh, became one of the biggest clubs in Asia and then ended up winning in 2018, won the title in, in China for the first time in the in the club's history. So that kind of became my own empirical study, uh, where I found out that this can be done. Uh, it's, it can it can be done even in a world of, of football where everything is short term and everything is resolved tomorrow. Uh, this is the best way of succeeding over time. Uh, you see an example like West Ham also that. Over the last 10 years, I saw an article on, on The Athletic, uh, very interesting, analyzing a, a West Ham over a 10-year period uh, with their current owners. And you see West Ham actually in that period has invested so much that they are top six club financially. But in those 10 years, they never finished in top six. Uh, but that is exactly because of a lack of a strategy and lack of a technical plan, changing coaches all the time, allowing coaches to bring in players and just for all the biased we just uh, we just discussed you were technical director at shanghai to sven goran eriksson am i correct i was firstly assistant coach to sven the first year when we started there and then the club promoted me to become technical director yeah, yeah. so you've got some of the issues there that i've previously spoken about you've got a head co- a high profile head coach on upon whom there will be lots of pressure uh, mm. If it was, I don't know about the Chinese media, but if it was the English media or the German media, perhaps they would be hammering them for the results week on week, week on week. So perhaps it perhaps it was easier because the the culture isn't so intense in China. I'm I'm suggesting, but how did you handle that relationship? The social media is quite tough in China, actually, in terms okay. of yeah. they won't change coaches very fast if there's a pressure. But but how how did you so how did you handle that along with Sven because you're trying to think more long term but yeah. he's going to know he's going to be judged short term and you've got to manage those two he's a he's with all respect quite a, a bigger name than yourself in 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 football um, and um, uh, head coach uh, you're, you're arguing quite. Um, Effectively, that head coaches will change more than technical directors, and that's the way it should be, uh, because the technical director is in charge of the long-term vision. So, how did you handle that on a on a specific, specifically in Shanghai SIPG, with all those factors going on? Yeah. So specifically with Sven, it was a little bit different because uh, basically at the time that I was promoted, Sven was changed as as the head coach. So. 
I started the plan before that mostly with the young youth teams and, and starting to make a strategy, giving KPIs to the to the president and the ownership, understanding that we are developing. Even let's say we don't win too many games for a period, then we're still on the right track. Uh, on we we're measuring on more on the underlying performances, measuring on on our young players who is increasing their their level and their value. Uh, but but it became relevant. Your question became relevant for for the last period in in, in my spell there, where we had two Portuguese coaches, Andra Villas Boas, who you would know from from the UK as well, and then Vitor Pereira, also a Portuguese coach, uh, and that became very relevant that they understood which kind of club they signed for, what, what the strategy they had to buy into. Uh, because you're, you are right, you're just uh, right about it. It's about communication as well, that, that it, this is communicated not only internally but also externally. We had um, uh, six transfer windows in a row in Shanghai where we didn't buy one player, which I think is some kind of world record almost in this uh, industry. <laughs> Uh, and in the sixth window, that was where we won the, the championship. So it's just to say that that we 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 didn't panic, we didn't shake on the hand when we lost a few games, but also we were not pressured by. Of course, these these coaches they will come along the way saying I need more players or I want this uh, player changed or and of course they have these wishes. I would have done the same if I was the coach probably. This is this is their role. This is their nature. Uh, but as a club, we didn't we didn't um, we didn't give give them the wishes because we believed in the strategy that we, we already uh, developed. So, but it's a lot about communication. Uh, and if it's if it's communicated well, if, if everyone understands their role, their position, their job description, their demands, uh, then I think it's, it's quite clear, actually. And I think that is the problem in most clubs, that coaches sign coming in thinking that they have more power than they actually have. Uh, and therefore, the fight will will start. You know, um, I've seen some some examples where coaches would also accept these circumstances, and then when they come in, they lose a few games, and they will go to the media and say, "I need more players," <laughs> which is, uh, I think it was was it Aston Villa recently also where uh, Dean Smith was out saying that I need more players, and and I think they signed ten players in in August. So it's it's just uh, that's a culture of being a coach. I think that. That you're used to having this kind of power and this kind of, of role. That's for therefore it's a big change for coaches. That I in in my model, I make coaches much less important. You could say. Yes, I'll, I'll come back to your model. I've got a your list of uh, of, of priorities. I, I just want to come on to the communication part because it's very important to me in my world in terms of content communication, social media, digital. My argument with this is that egos take over that i think fans these days um are very aware of their club's ability to spend or not spend and mm. also they're where they are in the in the ladder of things yeah and they're also sick and tired of the boom and the bust that you look at clubs that shine for two years and then yep. carry the pain for 10 or 12 years and yeah. maybe get up a division and then drop three divisions or drop two divisions yeah. And I, my argument is that football needs clearer communications to its fans internally, so, its fans, but also internally. So this is our vision. This is what we're going to do. This is going to be long term. And actually, I, th I think owners and coaches don't realise that fans will accept that if they say, this is your vision, this is what we're going to do, and then you live your values and can, and demonstrate that, I think fans are prepared to accept that because they look at other clubs and see some of the disasters, disasters yeah. is the wrong word, or problems that have happened in clubs having had this boom and bust culture. So if, if you turn to fans and say, look, we're in it for 10 years, we're building, we're going to have this technical director, he's going to be our guy, and then we're going to push youth, please support us, but it's going to take time and we're not going to buy that... Uh, striker who's asking for a lot of money when we think we might get promoted one year at the last minute in the transfer window on deadline day. I, I just think there's a, there's a there's a, an internal pressure on owners and coaches that if they communicated better with fans, they could get around and this long-term vision could work. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I actually agree. I think sometimes we underestimate fans, actually. We think yeah. that they are just there for, for the entertainment and they'll eat the popcorn and, and, and drink a beer and then they will win. If they not win, then everything is bad. You know, I think actually today I've also, I just, uh, 
my my club in Denmark called Brumby has just been through a rough period as well. And uh, the funny thing is um, about that is to when when the media, for example, is starting to to criticise Brumby for not doing enough short term, it's actually often the the fans to, who say no 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 we we have to fulfil our strategy. You know please be patient. And this is very unique. You know it's really unique to hear that the fans are actually taking the club's part in terms of, no, 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 we, we have a tradition of playing our own players, so but let's wait for them to come through instead of buying this 27-year-old player like you just uh, ex- expressed. Uh, so actually, I, I think you're right. And, and partly, uh, if I go back to our project in Shanghai, um, we, we had a strategy of playing uh, um, 50% of our team had to be homegrown local players. Uh, and there you have to understand the culture also this is another important factor when you make a strategy that they have to they have to uh, connect to the local culture i have not seen many clubs who succeed trying to make another strategy that that is far away from the culture of the city or of the club or of the people where in shanghai or in china in general chinese people are very proud of their local origin it's a big big part of their the proud feeling that I'm I'm from Shanghai or I'm from Beijing has a big big impact, much bigger than in Europe. That of course I also say I'm from Copenhagen and someone else is from the west of Denmark. There there is a difference there, but it it means very little to us. We we will often just say we're Danish. And China maybe because of the size of the country, but they, they it means a lot to be local. So when we go out and say we play 50% of our team uh, is local players, is born in Shanghai, you can meet him down at the at the local uh, coffee bar, or maybe you went to school with 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 him, or that actually meant something for people there. So they kind of accepted that we are building something here. You know, we accept that we have not bought a player for five years, which, to be honest, it's it's boring for a fan <laughs> in some way. You know, they also want uh, something to happen. They want to get emotions. They want to get in, endorphins in terms of transfer. This is a big part of being a fan, I think. But but our fans accepted this part because, like you just said, we communicated it from the beginning quite quite uh, directly. You talked about academy bringing players through. It's always an issue because every every club will turn around and say we want to bring players through. We want to bring players. So they all say it, mm-hmm. and yet it doesn't always happen. So what's the best way to smooth that path? through the relationship between the academy and the first team can be fraught it can be a difficult journey um short term is again car comes in as well um because the academy is thinking long term and the first team is often thinking short term or more short term so how do you smooth that path through yeah but again it has to be a club strategy so you have to make a, a we, we call it a transition strategy in in, in clubs so you you simply define a strategy for what is what do you do with what we call transition players, so players who are just ending their youth career, getting into the first team. And for example, putting down numbers like we did in Shanghai, say 50% of our playing time has to be to homegrown players. Then you you put yourself on in a corner. You know you have you have to fulfill that because you said it out loud. Uh, so that is one way because you're right about the other. I would call it nonsense that everyone's just saying that, oh, yeah, we have... I visit a lot of academies also in, in England when I left there and everyone's saying, oh, we have a great academy. And then when I asked how many players come through, oh, okay, yeah, not that many right now. <laughs> but they still had a great academy, according to themselves. Um, and that's because I think so, I, the academy managers I know, they struggle because there's no club... It's not a club decision. It's up to the head coach. We're back to the same the same issue as before. The head coach will decide whether it's successful or not. I remember speaking to people at West Ham at some point where they, they explained to me the the case of Declan Rice, who now, of course, is, is a great case, England national team player, homegrown player of West Ham. But if you if you look at his history, according to this source I spoke to, it's 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 down to luck that he made it because it was up to the manager and several of the managers who were there didn't like him. But for his luck, that that manager didn't get good results in the period and then he got sacked and a new manager came in and suddenly said, oh, I like this player. And suddenly he was he was in in, um, in the heat and Pellegrini started to, to use him, of course, because he liked the player. But that is, again, what I think is un, unsustainable. That is unhealthy model to, to rely on what one person at a Sunday or Saturday morning thinks about a player. You know, it has to be a club decision. Who do we believe in and how many of those should get the chance? Um, so that is that is how I would do it and what I now recommend clubs to do. I think the same thing applies to Ashley Cole, actually. In my time 
uh, at Arsenal. I think he was he was on loan to Crystal Palace, and I think I may be wrong, but I think that the story goes that he was he might have been bought by them full time, and um, he did so well there. He came back, and I'd argue he's been one of the best left backs in Premier League history, to be honest. And he's got the trophies to prove it. Um, anyway, just, just just you talked about English academies. How does it vary between England and Europe in terms of academy implementation? Is there any cultural difference? Any any structural difference? Yeah, there is still there is the difference that um, there is still a big gap between the English clubs' first team and academy. Where in Europe, especially in in France or in Holland, uh, in Denmark as well, there is a bigger connection. So either physically they will be at the same location. This is this is uh, something science has looked at has a big 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 effect on transition success if you are in the, physically in the same location. That instead of you having a first team in one location and academy in another location, that simply creates a, a very um, difficult path. Uh, so so in Europe you you have built often you try to build the academy and the first team in the same location. And again, you are a little bit ahead in Europe, some places in terms of having the strategy, like I just discussed, for the club, like like Ajax, for example, in Holland, where the coach, yeah, of course, the coach can decide on Sunday which 11 who, who will play, but the coach cannot decide if, if a youth player is supposed to train with the first team and be part of the first team uh, group that is decided by the club because the club has created a path for him over the last five, seven years. And, and now he's ready, and now the club takes him into the first team, because it's a club decision. Uh, and their English clubs still, uh, and many of them still lack that part. They still consider academy something, I think, a little bit of a brand, maybe, uh, to say we're having young players, but they're not really interested, or they're afraid that it will take time to develop them uh, so they don't give them the chance. And I also see that's why we see English players go abroad these, these days, the young players play in Germany and et cetera, because they simply cannot cannot find a way through. Um, of course, the level also impacts. It's easier to break through in a Danish club than it is to Manchester City. Uh, I remember speaking to uh, one talent developer at Man City a couple of years ago, and he said, 10 years ago, my job was to create a Premier League player. That is that is very difficult. Today, my job is to create a Champions League winner. That is impossible. Uh, and in some way, he's right because you, you can never, never. I've worked a lot with talents in my career and you can never develop a 17-year-old that can step into a team that can win the Champions League. That is simply impossible. Uh, but what you could do is make the, like I tried to explain before with Declan Rice example, make it more... Um, planned that that it's fair enough to send players on loan. <clears throat> that actually <clears throat> that can actually be a good strategy, but then do it as a part of the plan. Just don't do it just because you don't know what to do with him, and then you send him out and hope the best, and you don't hear from him in one year, and then now when he come back, you will sell him to a League One club. This is often what what will happen. It will not develop the player. It will actually expose uh, his his failures. Um, so that is uh, my main point. Yeah, the club must must make a, a transition strategy for for these group of players. So, so let's talk about your sustainable model. Um, and it's I think it's seven stages, um, but it's very much this leads to this leads to this leads to this. And you start off with club vision and strategy. So just quickly, what do you mean by that? Because yet again, every every club would say they have this, <laughs> but. Obviously, you can write it down, and then there's a, a whole different process to go through to execute it and execute it well. So, what do you actually mean by that? Yeah, there. I mean, I I, uh, I divide clubs into four categories. So, no matter where you are based in the world, you will be in one of these four categories. So, that is uh, the category one is what I call global or regional leader. So, that is, for example, Manchester City, uh, Paris Saint Germain, etc. Uh, then the second the second uh, group is is called potential league winners. Could be um, uh, Chelsea, Tottenham, uh, these type of clubs. Liverpool for a couple of years ago, but Liverpool now start to move into the first group, global leader, uh, regional leader. Uh, the, 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 the third group is, is more of a, what we call a mid, mid-table team, quite stable, will not get relegated, but will also not, not be going towards the top positions. And then you have the last group who's just so called survivors, who basically just trying to stay in the best league in their country. So clubs first have to define which which one of four they are. 
And uh, actually, the funny thing is, I've just said I've spoken to clubs that simply when I when I tell them this quite simple logic, they have not never thought about this before. Uh, what what are we actually? And uh, and then the next question is, what do they want to be? If you are a mid-table team and you want to to go into being potential league winner, then you have to make the the, the plan, the strategy, and the analysis that can make that realistic. Because we often hear owners saying, "Oh, I want to be top four, but but it's not realistic if you have a top ten budget. <laughs> so you have to connect your your vision to with the strategy. That if you that's exactly what we did in Shanghai. I mean, we came to a club that was top six. Uh, last year and they had a top eight budget and then the, 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 the owner says I want to be top three and we says no problem but then you have to invest more money then we have a top three budget then we'll make the technical plan that will affect and fulfill hopefully our, our, our vision so my point is the club have to be clear on what they want to be who they are what they want to be and how to get there that that lies in the in the vision and, and the strategy and then you've got your philosophy, which is your style of play, and your methodology. So let's bash those two together. So what what are they? What do you mean by them? Um, and how do they relate? Obviously, they've got to relate to the overall strategy and vision, right? Yeah. Yes. The, the, you could say the first part, vision strategy, is the 70% I talked about before that is proven to be uh, economics, deciding deciding who you are, actually, in, in the world of football. So now we in these two philosophy, style of play and mythology, we are down to the 20% that we can actually affect no matter if we have a lot of money or we have uh, very little money. So I did a presentation recently for Danish clubs about uh, this part, philosophy and strategy, and I talked for a couple of hours and suddenly um, one of the, the club owners, he, 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 sh- he raised his hand and he said, but this is easy for you to say you worked in Shanghai, they had a big budget, we are a very small club in the Danish uh, first division. And I said to him that, that that part is true, but what we talk about now, the good thing about philosophy methodology is that it's completely free. It will cost you 0.0 euros to, to, to do. But the point is you have to be clear. You have to choose a style of play that, that connects to your strategy, like, like we, we discussed before, that if you are from a worker club or worker society, maybe they don't want to see 2,000 passes. Maybe that's not what their fan base, their identity is waiting for. Maybe they want to see fight. Maybe they want to see direct style of play, aggressive, uh, aggressive uh, philosophy. So, so first you have to define who you are as a club, and then fits the style of play to that. But the style of play philosophy with Dolly can never change. That is my main point with this model. No matter if you change the coach, the coach cannot change this. He can, of course, come in and keep developing and, and help to, to evolve it. That will always happen in football, uh, but he cannot change it uh, around. Well, and, and you appoint a coach that fits that style of play, right? Exactly. In the first we, place. You can take again the example in Shanghai. We had Andrea Villas-Boas, and, uh, and um, we couldn't find agreement for a new contract. Andre was leaving and after the season, and then we hired Vita Pereira, who... Was we you spoke about criticism before? We were criticized for in the media that it was a very, uh, they called it a very defensive choice, a very um, uh, boring choice because Vitor didn't have a, the same CV as, as Andre did. Vitor was actually Andre's assistant coach in, in Porto. So what we what why we picked, took Vitor was because of his similar style of play, similar methodology as Andre. Uh, similar way of thinking football, developing football, which means that there was no change, basically. Of course, small adjustments, but no change in the big picture in terms of the style of play. So the club could just continuously keep developing the style of play, even we changed the head coach. A methodology? Have you spoken about that? Have you talked about style of play, but the methodology presumably is enacting the vision, the strategy and the philosophy, right? Yeah, how to train, how to how to analyze games, how to how to treat people, how to uh, recruit. That is all. That is your technical plan. How to approach all technical areas of a club, uh, and that again cannot be changed. A head coach cannot come in and say, "Oh, I, I want to, I don't want to use data scouting, for example." And, and and we let's say we have a club that relies a lot on data scouting. Then a head coach cannot come in and change that fact that that we we believe in data scouting. So this is uh, this is part of the. The periodization planning of, of a style of play, etc. And your fourth stage is recruitment strategy, and below that is the youth development part of it. So, 
is the recruitment strategy blending i mean transfers is last of your last stage so the recruitment strategy is basically is it the makeup of your team how much how much is going to be youth how much is going to be brought in the the size of the players the speed of the players the technique of the players Squad, squad planning, simply. Yeah. And, and and I always say to many of the clubs I worked in, I said that uh, the first place we recruit is our academy. When we are done recruiting at our academy, then, then we recruit externally. So we, we basically go in and say, let's say we, we, we do we have a, we need a new right back. He's, uh, he's about to retire, our old right back, whatever the situation is, or he's a long-term injury. What do we have in the academy on that position? That would be our first question. And then after that, we will say, okay, we don't have right now. No one is ready. Then we go for external. Um, that is, again, why we have not reached the head coach uh, role yet, because this is not his decision. If you ask me, this, this should always be a club decision. And the recruitment strategy, is that a case of almost having definitions of players? Your right Mac must be... Yes. Uh, able to overlap uh, so many full-out sprints a game, um, be able to long pass, short pass, all this kind of, kind of stuff, have certain almost 1 to 11 defining what that player, the characteristics of that player. Yes, first of all, of course, a scouting uh, recruitment strategy. Where, where do we scout? Do we pick certain areas? Uh, do we do we only pick certain countries to scout them because that fits to our style of play those type of players? But then again, what you just described there is called player profile. So you profile every position, saying what is a number ten in our style of play, what 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 attributes, what skills does he need to have, and then you would try to define that. How can we measure that in terms of objectively? Look at the player subjectively, measure from from for example from data. Uh, so just just to add one one side story here, this is uh, I, I visited an English club uh, six months ago, and they did a presentation for me about their setup. And uh, the funny thing was that they started saying. Um, in terms of the model, they had the player profiling, which which you just elaborated before the start of play, and then my curiosity became huge. So I raised my hand immediately and said, how can you define what players needs to be able to do when you don't know how you want to play? And that there we we, um, we were down to culture. And in England, the style of play is not very important in many clubs. That changes with the manager. And they don't believe in the details that much. You even have, if you look at the, the English FA, the, the coaching manual, it will say don't don't make too many stops during a training. Where in where in Europe, for us a stop is the only way you can teach players about about the style of play. So it's a simply it's a cultural thing that that for English clubs this this is not uh, very significant important. Next stage academy and youth development. So presumably, having got your philosophy down and having got your player profiles down, the academy is trying to create players that fit that style of play and those pro- those player profiles because you feel from your academy first. Exactly. We will have uh, alignment all the way through the club. We will have uh, all the teams training the same way, playing in the same way, of course, adjusted to the age group, but it will be in, in, within the same philosophy, within the same mindset. And we saw that in Shanghai. It took, it took two or three years before we could see the effect. We started the project in, in 2014 and, and around 2017, I started to see the effect from players being 13 to 15 years old or 15 to 17 or 17 to 19. They simply, they simply could easily adapt to the next level because there was no question of how, how to play or there was no question of my role. I understood exactly what I was supposed to do. And that's also why we could easily put them into the first team because they basically just played the same game just in a higher tempo. And the sixth out of your seven stages is the head coach. So, so... <laughs> What I mean, I suppose what is their role? I was going to say. I mean, we know what a head coach does, but it's he's coaching to the overall vision and fitting in with the style. Now, that is you're going to need a start, start, the right type of person to accept that, right? <laughs> Your recruitment is going to have to be very honest yeah. and as ego free as you can possibly get in football, and that's hard to do. <laughs> Surely, it's a it's a disruption of of the of the industry, 
And that's also why this will not happen tomorrow. This will happen slowly. But I, my, I, my belief is that it, it has to happen if clubs want to be sustainable over time. Uh, and then the clubs I've been working with the last year or so are starting to understand the necessary part of this because they keep walking into the same mistakes every year. They keep finding themselves back in the loop after four years thinking, oh, we're we back to the same position where we started, but we, but we spent money and we wasted time. So they start to be more um, open to this. But it is, like you said, it is a disruption of, of the way of thinking, not only for a club, but also for the coaches. The coaches has to <laughs> accept. I'm not, I'm not saying they are not important, not at all, because I know I know what a coach can do to a team in terms of communication, leadership, uh, training, etc. So, so I know how important they are. I'm just saying they have to be less important in terms of, of running the entire club. And the final stage you've got is transfers. So, and uh, presumably that's supplementing in key areas uh, where you can't uh, have a, have academy graduates. Maybe difference makers as well potentially. That those absolutely pivotal players. Um, but obviously you've got to make a decision at some point over an academy player, having nurtured them for ten, twelve years, whatever it is. Somebody at some stage might have to say, okay. They're not good enough. We're going to have to go into the market, and that's a very nuanced and difficult decision, right? Mm, definitely, and that's also why transfers is after the head coach because this this is important to say that the head coach, of course, has influence on this part. You know, we I would never, as a technical director or sporting director, if if I ever become that again, I will never bring in a player that the head coach significantly say no to. That, that will not happen. But on the other hand, I will also not never bring in a player that he wants that I, that the club that doesn't fulfill the club strategy. And I believe in that if the head coach from the beginning, we're back to the communication part, if the head coach from the beginning understands and buys into the club strategy and the vision, then we will not be that we will not disagree that much. We will disagree on on details. Of course, player A or player B, we can dig. We can agree or disagree on 10-15% if he's good or he's, he's very good, but, but we will never be saying he's very good or he's very bad. I simply don't believe that we will be uh, on, on, on that uh, level. We will have an alignment from the beginning, hopefully. That's what I saw in Major League Soccer. You've got a GM and then you've got a head coach. And presumably your philosophy is right. Well, if, if the GM goes and signs a player, even if the head coach is unavailable to talk and the deal has to be done in five minutes flat say for example they still should be broadly aligned because you've overall agreed your philosophy of play and your characteristics and your player profile so 80% of that you should be agreeing on anyway because those characteristics will be written down and hopefully tangible and you could effectively sign a player and and agree about it 80% of the time on the basis of those those things you've already written down is that the the way you see it working? Yeah, correct. And uh, I would just say to your comment about the US that I would say they role-wise, they are a little bit ahead actually, but their main problem is, uh, according to the clubs I know there, is that the GM, they will run a little bit within the, um, the article I wrote about 75% of clubs being unhealthy because of lack of football understanding that many of the GMs is business people who definitely knows how to 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 run a business and and, and to incorporate different things, but but they, they 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 don't know the football industry. They don't have the history. It's still a new game for them. So their problem is they lack football knowledge in their decision making. And the salary cap is a uh, is a differentiator as well. So sure. they need to be accountants sure. almost to manage that. And exactly, yeah. there is uh, the same in China. We only can buy three foreign players. So with that. That really changes your recruitment setup. You know, the recruitment strategy becomes completely different. So, a club comes to you and says, Mads, we agree with everything you're saying. Everything you're saying. I'm we're still gonna... waiting. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking fairy tales, fantasy land, <laughs> brothers grim. Okay, Hans Christian Andersen to, to talk about a Danish person. Here we go. Um, <laughs> um, how long does it take for you to deliver a return? Yeah, I mean, in saying again, the, the only case I have you tried myself on myself, of course, is the Shanghai case, and there we said five years, and uh, we won the championship after four. Uh, but we also it's also important to say that it's not four years in hell. <laughs> 
I mean, it's not it's not going to be four years of a D route and then suddenly we pop up. You know, you will you will actually develop along the way. In Shanghai, we had we did, we finished uh, second, third, third, second, and then we won the championship. So it it, it was an easy easy trap to follow. That we were we were moving one step at a time, and then now we are a top three club. Now we can play Asian Champions League. Good. Now we are top two club. And suddenly we became challenger of the championship, and next year we won the championship. So it was almost—I sometimes laugh about this example because it was almost too perfect in some way, in terms that you could measure all the way that this was uh, this was uh, this was going to come. Uh, also, age-wise, we were squad planning. We had a team who was around 23 when in 2014. Then we knew football teams peak around 7, 27, 28. So that would be around 2017. And that's also where we won the, the championship. So, you know, it was a peak of of planning. Uh, so that that is always when I work with club now as a consultant, I always say to them, don't do this if you don't think about five years. You know, if you, if you hope that what I bring will win on Sunday or you'll get a better result next year or you can sign better players in, in, in six months, then then please hire someone else. I'm, this is not right or wrong. This is just what I believe in and, and what I, I'm sure I can make a difference if you get the time. But but I would say never, never go under five years. Yeah, I was going to say five years. I, I thought you were going to say longer than that because a youth policy... Oh. If you're bringing in eight-year-olds, for example, if you're redefining what you're doing all the way along, those eight-year-olds are going to take 10 years before they're knocking on the door of the first team, right? True, true, true. I, uh, five years, I mean, in terms of developing a style of play, integrating the, the player profiles from first team, under 19, under 17, those age groups who would be affected by a five-year period. That, that, that's enough time. But then you're, you're absolutely right. The big, the big impact, the same in, in Shanghai, I always say to them, we brought in good players uh, in, within five years, but I say just wait, <laughs> because I, I've seen, uh, for example, the 2007 group, which, like you just said, they're 12 years old today. We started with them when they were seven. I mean, they're going to be very good in, in five years if, if they continue. Who's doing this well? Which clubs are doing this well already around the world? There is a few, I would say. Ajax, for example, is, is a club that, that has a, a clear strategy has fulfilled uh, in terms of picking a way of playing, sticking to it no matter if you lose or you win. Uh, they, they follow it. They, they keep bringing in the youth players. Of course, it's also a business model for them. They need to sell players. Uh, I would also say that even though it's a big, big, big club and it's a different way of uh, thinking when you are a global leader, I would say Manchester City or Liverpool has also proved to be sustainable. Uh, I would say I visited City many years ago where, where they were building their style of play and, and you could just see it had Guardiola written all over it so for me it was no surprise that he ended up becoming the coach after after four or five years time after the new, the new leaders came in so you know this is also a way of, of, of planning your success investing the, the enough budget of course if you want to be a global leader but also keeping your style of play I mean from Pellegrini to to uh, to Guardiola and, and Mancini to the overlapping of style of play in terms of of course adjusting some things and detailing some things but slowly slowly moving it into the, the right um, direction uh, Salzburg of course in in, uh, in uh, Austria you could you could always discuss now we're not discussing which style of play that's a completely we can take a whole program for that but uh, but they have chosen a way at least and they are clear on what they recruit they are clear on the expectations for the coaches so it's a club that has taken uh, um, yeah, a clear decision. Well, the only thing they maybe lack is that they they have not connected this to the local culture. <laughs> you know, they are extremely hated in Germany uh, because this is this is very far away from German cultures. That is their um, that is their problem. Uh, but that is some of the clubs that I think has has taken steps. There's one club in Denmark called FC Nordschiland, who is the youngest team in Europe. Playing around 28 years, uh, 21 years old, average. Uh, have an academy in Ghana. Have a club in Denmark. Connecting these two parts, um, they are they are extremely good at, at what they do. Of course, also lower expectations for them. They they are not a global leader. They're not supposed to win the Champions League, so they have more time to develop. But they've also done it extremely um, elegant, I would say. Just to pick you up on that, I mean, when we talk about a sustainable model. We're talking about the ability to earn enough money to keep you going and progress. Are City and Red Bull 
the Red Bull organisations like that because they've come in with an awful lot of money. I know it's what it is is consistent and planned, but there's an awful lot of money behind it. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, you could. I always say that the biggest clubs can get away with bad planning because yeah. of the money. Like Real Madrid, they actually don't have a good strategy, if you ask me. And at least it changes every time they change the code, so it's not really sustainable. But because they are Real Madrid, because they have the economy they have, they can get away with it. They will still win the Champions League now and then. They will still get a La Liga title now and then. But they will not win 7 of 10. That is the point. They they should win 7 of 10, but they don't because Barcelona has a, has a more clear strategy and continuously um, do it. You saw Barcelona, they sacked uh, their coach this, this past week, the first time in 17 years that they sack a coach. So that shows um, that, that the style of play is defined for them and they always pick the coaches that fits to their club uh, which I actually also think they have done again now <laughs> with, the, with the new coach so I think they, they kind of went back to their I would have said Barcelona bef- now I would probably have said Barcelona if you ask me uh, today but, but, but I was visiting Barcelona in, in March last year and I could see the disconnection between the academy and the first team at that time you know that, that the academy was very Disappointed about Valverde, about the club letting him decide not to use the young players anymore. Uh, and that the Barcelona team playing more pragmatic, uh, just giving the ball to Messi and then he would deal with it. Uh, not playing the Barcelona style of play anymore. And, and I watched a game at by the Camp Nou when I was there with some youth coaches. And the interesting part was they were shaking their head even the team was winning. And they were saying, this is, this is not Barcelona. And you know, on the their big brand, Mescuing Club, which means more than a club. And they keep saying to me, "You see, our our history, we are more than a club. What are we more than a club when we just play like Real Madrid? Then we're just a club, you know." So, so it shows again that that you have you, it's very dangerous to go in and fight against the culture or the traditions of a club that have to that have to be connected to your strategy, your style of play. The two I was going to throw in one in the past was Auxerre under Giroud. Obviously, yeah. obviously, maybe they they haven't got a technical director and a head coach. He was everything there, yes. and it was based around him. But what they did do was bring players through, and yeah. they they became a European force, having intelligently added certain players. And the other modern one I'd look at, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is Brentford, who are coming through and knocking on the door of the Premier League when they are, mm. you know, in history, they're a, a third or fourth tier side, but they've. They've got a vision. They're executing it very well. Um, yes, they've got a little bit of money behind it, but they're also they're executing what they're doing exceptionally well. So your your thoughts on those two examples? Yeah, I would say is, I agree with you. But that was back to the to the nineties, where again, like Ferguson or, or Arsene Wenger, it was born by one person, you know, and that that's for me not very sustainable. It was sustainable because at that time you didn't sack a coach. When they, for let's say, they one season they finish 14th, they would still keep uh, Giroud, uh, where today he would have been sacked. I mean, Ferguson, I think also he was saying in an interview one time that he would have been sacked in his first year in Man United if, if it was today. Uh, because he was they, sacked, yeah. They, 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 uh, they were losing a League Cup game at Oxford and they came back to win. And the story was that if he'd have lost that early on, he would have been sacked uh, within a couple of years. Yeah, so yeah. that continuity aspect is crucial for managers. There's many a manager exactly. and coach that Different. turn around and say one thing's changed it, bought them a little bit of time. Yeah. You know. True, so. true. Uh back to Brentford. Um I know that well of course we, we would claim they're almost half Danish after all almost. <laughs> no. Um no Brentford is is very good in terms of their strategy, you know, they're very clear in what they do and they don't take emotional decisions. I know Matthew a little bit, Matthew Benham, the owner, and uh, what I liked about him that the few times I spoke to him is that the fact that that he, he refers to, to their their model, he refers to their data model and, and how they they, are, they support their decision making and that's why they over time will be uh, more successful than their budget actually allows I mean they have a, I think number 16 budget or something like that in the championship but they have finished top 10 the last 4 or 5 years um, I would though claim and I can say this out loud because I'm sometimes teasing them as well with it that they're not that clear on the style of play and that's maybe why uh, they haven't got the real effect yet um, that they changed from a Dutch coach to, to Dean Smith and the style of play was not very clear to me when I watched the team play. And that's why I think I think they could get even more out of the 20% if they had a more clear style of play. And that is what has happened now. I'm not 
only saying this because Thomas is a good friend of mine, the head coach, but but actually Thomas is more detailed on the style of play. And that's why I think they now get a full effect of their of their uh, model uh, because their recruitment model is, is unique. That is their DNA. But now they start to make a style of play as well. In, in your in your conversations when you go around clubs in in Europe or around the world, are they are these conversations starting to get easier? Is this insular world of football that I would argue for many years has been anti-intellectual that that only football people can talk to football people and certainly only football people can criticise football people when there's an awful lot of failure, an awful lot of expensive failure around, in my opinion. Are, you, are the conversations getting easier? Are the doors a little bit more open for you these days? Definitely. There has been a change the last two, three years. That's also why I... It's not because I, I have a big plan of making a big consultancy firm. I actually prefer just to, just to be myself. But but I, that's also why I I, I, um, I started this consultancy because I saw a gap in the market and I saw a market that is starting to understand these factors because they are tired of losing money. They are tired of wasting um, salaries on former 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 coaches. Sometimes you have four coaches on a, on a payroll. Uh, so it's it's starting. I also see now you and me are talking here, but also in the Danish media, I see, I hear journalists or, or media start to use the word strategy. I hear them start to talk about a club not having a strategy. You know, this, this didn't happen five years ago. So there's no doubt that there is a starting trend here. Uh, also from, and you know, the media is also powerful in terms of telling telling the the viewers and and the observers what what to think and and, and what to uh, what to do so this is uh, i think it's 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 a big big ship that needs to be turned but it is slowly starting to uh, to turn one question this is a little bit of hobby horse for for me um you're talking about sporting success on the pitch and how to attain that is that actually the be all and end all for a football club, I know it's massively important, but if you're a, if you're a Bromby fan, Bromby yeah. have not had the greatest time, but you're not going to go and support FC Copenhagen. You're not going to support Odense. Um, you may your support may fluctuate, but mm. the the culture of the club and representing you as a supporter, your area, your culture, your history, your heritage, is that as important or close to as important as, 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 as what you deliver on the pitch, representing you the right way, or be that in the style of play, it'll be it in the philosophy. Um, all I'm saying is that football clubs sometimes say everything's about a winning team. Well, actually, there's been a lot of failure and the, and the fans of a club still stick with that club. No, you're, you're spot on. I think uh, using Bramby as an example, again, is, is a good example because just this week, Bramby was rumoured to being uh, overtaken by Red Bull. <laughs> so it's a very concrete example. And the fans went completely mad. Uh, even, even, even arguably, they would get a top economy in, in Scandinavia. They would probably get top talents that they, we could, they cannot get now. They would probably realistically be able to win more titles with Red Bull as compared to the situation right now. But the fans went completely the other way. They wrote a letter to the club. They uh, they demonstrated in front of the club uh, that, that this is not Bromby. This has nothing to do with, with, with being Bromby. Uh, so this was, a, for me, a great example of what you just said, that there's much more to it uh, than, than just winning. And, and, and the other thing was that I, I met a club from the Danish second tier, very small local club, fantastic little club that has a very... Uh, uh, good uh, local environment, and and he and the owner there, he keeps saying to me that I want to promote to the Super League, and then uh, for me, I said, okay, that that's fine, and then suddenly I said to him, why do we want to promote actually? And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you play in the in the second tier, you you play with local players, uh, it's, it's the it's the you know the local postman's son and and all that, um, so people come here, they enjoy the club, there's a good fan base, there's a good feeling in the club, everyone is happy. If you go if you go up, logically you're gonna to have to change a lot of the players because otherwise you're gonna be level wise you're gonna be relegated. So that means you have to buy foreign players, you have to change your whole club. But that is that even the point for a club like yours? And he actually said, "Wow, this this is interesting. I never really thought about that." He said, "I just assumed that I had to tell them that we wanted to promote to the Super League because that's what everyone is saying." So that that is that for me is, is a good point. But you will often be 
you will probably be told that you are not professional and not serious if you don't have those kind of ambitions. That's probably kind of the, the lemming effect I spoke about in my article, that we just do what everyone else is doing. We say what everyone else is doing. Uh, where FC Nordsjælland, I mentioned again, in the Danish club has, has went completely the different way. I mean, they just said this is about developing players and nothing more. And then, of course, they are not. I know them very well. They are not stupid. They also know that when they develop top players, they can sell. They can get a good economy. They can produce even better players. And when you produce that good players in a small league like the Danish, then you will also be able to compete. So, of course, things go together. But for them, they are very clear. They would never invest shortly to win something. They just produce as good players as possible. That is their brand. That is their strategy. So I think it's, I agree with you. I think this is a, it's an important discussion that clubs should have internally. Just finally, where do you want to take Optima? Where, where do you want to go personally? Uh, I mean, I mean the, the vision for, for Optima was from the beginning <clears throat> just to make a difference for, for the world of football. I mean, I know it sounds a bit uh, Mother Teresa kind of uh, vision, but that is, to be honest, the whole point of it. You know, I, I, I could easily have chosen customers mostly in China because I have a good name there that obviously could pay more than others but but I, I often I want to find clubs that are underperforming but have big potential so often a club that that has an economy or a budget or history that is significantly higher that they have finished over the last few years then I know there is something to to develop and then and it, it's often because of these circumstances that they are not performing so these are the clubs I mostly uh, I mostly try to work with uh, but the one issue is that the clubs often only call you when they are on the edge of falling off the cliff they don't they don't call you when they shoot when they are when they're in the mid-table or they're in a good position and won three games in a row. Um, so this is this is another industry problem. I had one one uh, club in, in in Germany that, that uh, invited me for a meeting and said that we want to to work with you. And um, and then uh, he, he called me back a few weeks later. I actually was my, my, my book, my flight was booked and everything. And then he called me back and said, you know, we just won three in a row, so we will postpone it a little bit. Uh, so that that show you that that this is this is exactly a club you don't want to work with because they they base their their analysis on 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 uh, feelings or or short term uh, circumstances. Yeah. So I try to find owners or, or clubs that that is willing to 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 make a change and are willing to to think uh, long term planning. Matt Davison, thank you very much. Pleasure. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Mr.